spotlighting Hawaii's leaders. We want to bring in Governor David E. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Lieutenant Governor, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Mayor Derek Kawakami. Thank you so much, uh, Senator, for being here. Spotlighting the issues. Where is the virus right now in our community? How much is this overall going to cost the state? How are you responding to the community's concerns? Talk about the level of citations that you guys are writing. Spotlight Hawaii with Yanji Denise and Ryan Kalei Suji on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long's Drugs. Well, happy Aloha Friday. Thanks so much for tuning in uh, on this Friday. I'm Ryan Kalei Suji, joined by Yanji Denise, and this is Spotlight Hawaii on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. It is turning out to be a busy Friday morning with a lot happening in news. But this morning, Yanji, uh, we are going to be able to speak to someone that we've been trying to get on this program for some time now and really uh, glad and fortunate we have the opportunity to do so this morning. Yeah, we extended the invitation to the Navy to join us to talk about the crisis at Red Hill and steps moving forward, uh, what's happening when it comes to water safety uh, in that area, and also the long-term plans to decommission those tanks. So joining us live from the Navy is Rear Admiral Dean Vanderlei. Thank you so much for being here this morning. My mute button failed there. Um, thank you very much, uh, Yenji and, and Ryan, uh, for the opportunity and for my, inviting me on. Really my pleasure, and I literally welcome the opportunity. Thank you. That's wonderful. We appreciate your time this morning. Uh, I want to start out with a little bit of background on you. What's your role in all of this, if you can tell us sort of where you fit into this picture? Yeah, certainly. So I am the. Uh, I have a couple different titles. One of them is the um, PAC Fleet, so the Civil Engineer for the Pacific Fleet and also the commander of Naval Facilities Engineering Command Pacific. We often call ourselves NAVPAC Pacific. And so in those roles, I'm responsible for um, planning, design, and construction for the Navy and Marine Corps across the entire Pacific to include the, uh, the western side of the mainland. And then also um, um, responsible for things like environmental and the operation of utilities. So very specifically to Red Hill, which is what we're talking about today, um, been very involved with everything that has to do with the restoration of the water system and the continuing monitoring of that, as well as all of the environmental uh, monitoring and remediation associated with Red Hill. We know that there's a lot that we want to ask, uh, but there's only a few things that or some things that you aren't obviously able to address. Uh, but, uh, you know, we would like to start off by just asking where we are at uh, in the responsibilities that you specifically have when it comes to Red Hill uh, and the contaminated water and the testing that is currently going on. What can you tell us about the status of testing that is happening with the water uh, that is servicing those members of the military? Yeah, Ryan. So, you know, I think as, uh, as everyone's well aware, um, we responded and over the last you know months did a pretty extensive flushing of our water system and then sampling to confirm that our that our Navy water distribution system was safe, and uh, you know, in close coordination with the interagency team of Department of Health and EPA, um, and ultimately we're we're able we're successful in achieving um, a designation that our water system is safe to drink. As part of that, then we also have now um, embarked on a long-term monitoring. That was also that entire plan was put together as part of the interagency team. Um, with Department of Health and EPA. And so we're in our third month now of this long-term monitoring. It's really extensive sampling process where we sample 5% of all of the different facilities on our water distribution system, including all the residences, 
um, each month. And we're going to do that for three months. And then for a total of two years, we'll continue a robust sampling where then we'll, through periods every three months, we'll again sample 5% of all of the, uh, of all of our uh, facilities and residences. So again, really just doing a, a very extensive and rigorous sampling process to, to ensure that our water distribution um, continues to be safe. And so that's where we're at. Um, we've, throughout all the sampling, uh, we haven't got any indications of any fuel in the water. So it's very, very good news. Um, the positive hits that we have had have been for some things like lead and they've all been, every time we get a hit that's above um, any sort of uh, uh, level, then we go through and then we, we look and identify exactly what's causing it. All of those have been specific to a fixture. And so what we do then is we change out that fixture, resample, and all of those have been cleared. You know, there are still reports, uh, especially in the social media space, where you see families saying that, they're, that they are concerned about health effects, that they feel perhaps that their water is still contaminated. Are you confident that there is no contamination in those areas right now? Yeah, thank you. I am very confident. As I said, we have a very, very extensive sampling process um, that we've been using to ensure that our water system is safe. And, you know, have uh, over 2,000 samples so far. And it's, at, by the end, we'll have done nearly 8,000 um, samples um, in very rigorous samples. So I'm confident that our water system is safe. I will say that we also have, we've, we continue to maintain what we call a rapid response team. And so if anyone does have any concerns with their water, I really encourage them to call our uh, call our hotline number and, and register that so that we can get out there to their home and understand what's going on and why they have those concerns and then we can address them. We have some ability to do some immediate sampling. Uh, we have some capability we didn't have before that we now have for some rapid sampling so we can do that and really just understand what's going on. And similarly, if somebody has, you know, I'm clearly not a doctor, but if somebody has health concerns, you'll really encourage them to go see, be seen by their medical provider to ensure that, that that's being addressed. If you can speak to where this water sources are, are coming from uh, specifically, because we know that the affected area of that halava shaft was shut down, uh, at least for those uh, civilians and those who utilize it, the water supply through the you know department, the board of water supply, uh, and and the military as well had that shut down. But was there any rerouting uh, of wells and water to those that use that facility? And how are you monitoring that moving forward? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. So. The uh, I think I think every, everybody's aware, you know, the contamination stemmed from the Red Hill. We call it the Red Hill shaft or the Red Hill well right there that's near the Red Hill fuel facility. So we have a water well there. That was a source of the contamination that was shut down in, you know, as soon as we had indications of an issue um, back in late November. And that has continued to be um, not per, not sending water into the water distribution system. So all of our water in the Navy water distribution system is currently coming from what we call the Wyava shaft. And that is a fair distance away. It's about, I would probably say, you know, 10 miles out to the west. Um, so quite a significant ways away from Red Hill. And that, and that uh, water source, we continue to test um, periodically to, continue, to confirm that it continues to be safe. And it has been, and throughout, no indications ever of any contamination uh, of that source. So that continues to serve um, the, the entire Navy water distribution system. I'm interested, uh, you know, there is this question of where that fuel went, the fuel that was not uh, captured by flushing out the system and, and what they could do immediately in the aftermath. Are you helping the Board of Water Supply to track 
uh, where that contamination may have gone, because these are two separate entities, uh, yeah. basically with a similar purpose. So how does that work? Uh, do you work in conjunction or did they do their own testing and you do your own testing? And, and what have you found? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And thank you for asking that. And, and you know, I talked about, I've talked quite a bit about, you know, my responsibilities associated with the Navy water distribution system, but you know, my responsibilities with regard to environmental monitoring are every bit and even more, more important. And that has a lot to do with what you're, what you're asking about, man, which is, you know, what are we as a Navy doing to be a good partner to, uh, to monitor contamination in the vicinity of Red Hill, to provide that assurance, you know, to the Board of Water Supply and really to the people of Hawaii um, that their water is safe. So we have historically had a system of what we call monitoring wells around um, the Red Hill fuel facility and, and have been monitoring those for a number of years now. We did not have extensive water monitoring wells around the area of the latest, the release that we had in November. So that was in a different part of the fuel facility. We did not have an ex as extensive of a monitoring well um, network around that area. So we are right now drilling new monitoring wells in, right in that vicinity that's gonna give us really good information as to what contamination may exist um, in that area of the fuel farm. And we've gotten, you know, starting to get some very preliminary results back. It'll be a few weeks before we get the detailed results. Uh, initial indications are positive. We're not seeing extensive contamination in that area. So that's one thing that we're doing is the monitoring wells right there in the vicinity of, of where that um, release happened, the spill happened in November. And then the second thing we're doing, it'll take a little bit longer is we're putting in a second type of monitoring well that we call a sentinel well. So if you know what a sentinel is, a sentinel somebody provides a warning. So those are some wells that they're basically put in right in the middle. So the closest um, civilian water well, the closest port of water supply uh, well from Red Hill is about a mile away. So about halfway in between there, we're working to install some additional what we call sentinel wells. And those will, again, provide an early warning of any contamination that could be migrating in that direction. So, you know, those are two of the things that we're doing to really provide good information um, to, you know, to the regulatory agencies that, that monitor our water, which is the Board of Water Supply and EPA, but then also to the Board of Water Supply that actually operates that system. And, and as I said, you know, nothing's more important than me than being a good partner, um, you, know, you know, to the state of Hawaii and to all those folks. Um, to, uh, to give them the best information we can on to ensure that, you know, give them the best information to make, be able to, to let them make the determination that their, that their water is safe. Another thing that we're doing right in the tunnel where the spill happened is we're putting in, um, we've already put them in and we're putting in some more, um, we call them soil vapor monitors. So that really tells you, so when the, when the fuel was released, what happens to it, you know, some of it, most of it was recovered directly, but some you know, obviously got out of that fuel tunnel, got into the soil that's underneath um, that tunnel. And then obviously some of it migrated about 80 feet down to where what we call the saturated, you know, portion of the aquifer exists. And so, you know, a lot of that fuel, you know, appears to be in that rock and, and soil that's underneath that tunnel. So those soil vapor monitors, again, help us to understand where that is um, how much is there, characterize it, and then ultimately help come up with um, strategies on how to either remediate it or monitor it. 
And and let's speak to that a little more about that because you know obviously we're talking about water the contamination but had never really thought about the impact that it could have on soil uh, that you speak of. Uh, what sort of effects would that potentially have, and and what would that contingency plan look like to solve that if it did in fact get into the soil and rock that you speak of that is surrounding that aquifer? Yeah. So, so and just to probably clarify, Ryan. Um, so what happens, you know, whenever we have a soil release is obviously the first thing it or a fuel release, you know, the first thing it's going to enter is the soil and the rock. And then it's going to, you know, some amount of it's going to migrate down. It's, it's, uh, it takes a fair amount of analysis and to determine how much of it's really going to get hung up in the soil and rock and how much will go down to the water. For the most part, it's a good thing for it to get held up in the soil and the rock underneath the tunnel. Um, because what will happen is it will sit, you know, as long as it's, it'll sit there as kind of a stable plume and over time it will degrade, you know, it's, it's never acceptable to have, you know, fuel released in the environment. So don't get me wrong. But one of the things about fuel is that there are actually microbes in the environment that will break it down. And so that process, you know, is hap happens and is already happening where any soil is sitting in that ground will then slowly break down. We always look for opportunities to directly remove it. Um, where that's possible. In some cases, it's not possible. Then the other thing we look at is sometimes there's things that you can do to actually accelerate that natural decay. So for instance, um, if you inject heat in, the, in this form of steam, in some cases that can help if you inject oxygen. So all those things can sometimes allow those microbes to kind of eat fuel a little faster. And uh, so, so that's what we really do with the, with the uh, contamination in the soil. There is one area where we found where we have been able to remove it with direct um, excavation. So that's in process right now. And then over the long, long term, we'll continue to monitor and look for opportunities to continue to either remove it or uh, accelerate its degradation. You know, the Navy has agreed to decommission this facility in the long term. What's your best estimate of how long that's going to take and, and what are your concerns with doing that too quickly or too slowly? You know, as, as those tanks sit there, we don't know exactly how many gallons are, you know, we've been told that there's a, there's a national security question and so we can't actually know the exact amount of fuel, but we do know that it is tens of thousands of gallons of fuel that are sitting there right now and could potentially leak more uh, while we wait. Uh, but then there are also questions of, 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 you know, extracting the fuel too quickly. So what are your concerns with actually the decommissioning itself? And how long do you think that's going to take? Yeah, thank you. Um, so, so we when you, I'll start with the first question about what are my concerns. And so, the number one priority with the defueling of the Red Hill um, facility is to do it safely, and and that's you know not only my concern but the concern for all of you know Navy and Department of Defense, and frankly even I think our regulatory partners all have the same priority here is that. You know, in order to close the Red Hill fuel facility, obviously the first step is to actually remove that fuel, and we want to do it absolutely safely. So we've been doing a lot of work. There was a third-party assessment that was done to look at um, the infrastructure, to look at the operations, and so we're taking the results of that study now and putting together, you know, our plan for what needs to be done in order to absolutely do this safely. And then that plan is going to get reviewed through the highest levels of Navy and Department of Defense to again make sure that we're doing it absolutely safely. Um, it's, I really probably, I can't really tell you because I just simply don't know how long that's gonna take. I think, you know, over the coming months that will become more clear as we get a better idea as to what infrastructure repairs in particular, that's kind of what's under my purview, what infrastructure repairs are gonna be required 
in order to uh, to do this defueling safely. And then once we've identified the scope of those repairs, I'll really have a, I'll have a much better idea on how long those are going to take, and that's going to drive to some degree how long it will take till we're ready to start safely defueling. Do you think it's a matter of months, years? I mean, what generally, you know, ballpark, how long do you think it will take? Um, to do the infrastructure repairs again, I, I don't, I would hate to speculate too much. It's definitely, you know, in the, it, it'll be, it'll be months um, and potentially, I don't, I don't know. I, I would, I wouldn't want to speculate as to how many months it will be. It'll, it'll be, it'll take some amount of time. Um, it really depends on the scope of those infrastructure repairs um, letting contracts, getting the contractors out there, um, overseeing the work, and then again, ultimately ensuring that um, we are ready to defuel that facility completely safely. I wonder if you can re rewind the tape a little bit and go back to when this was first uh, discovered and that, uh, you know, the clearing and cleansing of that water that was being washed out uh, through the system and being uh, you know, directly going to those military families that were being impacted. Of course, we know that they were removed from their homes for some time as the, you know, you folks went through those testing and those procedures. Uh, can you explain specifically how that water was washed out and, and was cleared uh, from the fuel and how that, where the fuel in that water that was maybe extracted from those contaminants, where that ended up? Yeah, absolutely, Ryan. So that was a, a plan that was put together in close coordination with our, our regulatory partners from Department of Health and EPA. And so what we did is we imported um, some large filtration systems. Uh, you probably have heard them referred to as GACs, potentially that stands for granulated activated carbon units, but they're essentially large tanks that filter the water and they, they include the granulated activated carbon. What that does is it filters out any contaminants to include any, any fuel or petroleum products that were in the water. So what we did is we then, we had all of those systems that we then connected up to our water system and then flushed each, each section of our water system um, through, those, through those tanks to ensure that the water that we were flushing out was, was completely um, clean and pure. And then we tested that water that we were flushing to verify that, it was, that we were flushing nothing but clean water out. And so any, any fuel um, that was flushed out through that process was then captured in that, in that granulated carbon, and then that was properly disposed of. I want to bring in a few audience questions. Um, Susan says, what can the Navy do to speed up the infrastructure evaluation repair? Does it even want to do so? You don't have to answer the second part. Mm -hmm. uh, the other th question from Joel, jo George White, similar, if the fuel got in there safely, why is it not able to be removed safely and quickly? You know, we tend to focus on the tanks themselves, but we know there's a network of pipes. And I assume that that's the, a lot of the infrastructure that you're talking about. How, how concerned are you about the integrity of those pipes and about leaks coming from that? Is that what is holding all of this up? So, um, yeah, to answer great questions, by the way. So thank you. Um, the, uh, let's, let's start with, uh, looking at, you know, whether we're interested in doing it quickly. And so we, you know, we absolutely are the Navy Department of Defense and, you know, working closely with our regulatory partners, we're all interested in do in balancing safety and speed. So we we're not trying to drag this out and it's in nobody's best interest, frankly, to drag this out. So we absolutely do want to do it quickly, but to do it safely and, and to really strike that right balance. Um, 
you are correct that a lot of the infrastructure, in fact, all all of the infrastructure focus has been on um, the distribution system, the piping, the valves, to ensure that that's safe for defueling. You know, the tanks themselves, and I won't get into it too much, but there is, you know, a process that's, that's historically has been done for a few years now of clean inspector repair. And we do not have any indication um, of a problem with the tanks themselves. And the fuel is sitting there in those tanks. We do not have any indications of a problem there. But as we defuel and um, start sending a lot of fuel through all this piping, we want to make sure that that piping and that piping distribution system is absolutely safe for defueling and that we do not, you know, in create any increased risk to the environment um, by a spill in that defueling process. So you're right that those, those pipes have been in place for a long time and, and we've been using them. But before we defueling, the idea is really to take a step back and make absolutely sure that that entire distribution system is safe for defueling. You know, through this, uh, all, everything that has happened, we've also learned about just the testing capabilities here within the state. And there have been questions about uh, what the capacity is here on island. Uh, of course, we know the University of Hawaii has gotten involved and sometimes samples have had to be sent to the mainland. Uh, to get further and more in-depth analysis of these water samples. What can you tell us about any developments uh, on that end with testing and, and how accurate these tests are? Uh, since Oahu lacks, you know, that EPA certified testing, uh, how confident mm -hmm. are you in the results that you are getting right now? And uh, if you can explain a little more about the testing procedures. Yeah, absolutely, Ryan. So so the the testing that we're doing, the long-term monitoring, as well as the monitoring of, of in the monitoring wells, all of those samples still do get sent back to certified labs on the mainland. So there's a there's a pretty rigorous third party assessment that happens to ensure that those that every sample that we take is properly uh, properly processed and that we get accurate results. So that's still the way that we are doing um, all of our sampling is sending all of our samples back to the mainland through to certified labs. Uh, we do have some additional capability here now. That, that's helpful. So we do have some some portable um, testing equipment that's that's used by our uh, rapid response teams. Those do not constitute you know certified samples, but they at least give us some information that's helpful. Uh, we've also been working closely with the University of Hawaii, as you alluded to, um, the Navy in a, in a through an academic partnership. So one of the things that the Navy does with universities all over is we have various academic partnerships to promote their research. So using that academic partnership program, we've been able to provide the University of Hawaii with some um, enhanced um, equipment to be able to, to allow them to do um, a lot more uh, detailed sampling than they've ever been able to, to do before. And, and I think probably more capability than we've ever had here on Oahu, uh, at least in recent memory. And so that, that equipment is there. The University of Hawaii is in the process of getting that set up and establishing that capability. Um, and that, that will be, again, an, a fantastic capability to have here on Oahu. Even if we don't use it for the certified testing, having that capability here is extremely helpful. You know, we bring in audience questions. We also bring in questions from our colleagues. Our military reporter, Kevin, uh, who I'm sure you're familiar with, sent us this one. He said, on December 10th, you told the Hawaii legislature that working with the health department, your goal was to get residents back in their homes by Christmas, even though Army leadership earlier that day said publicly that a return by Christmas was not possible. Were the Navy and, Ar uh, and Army giving, why were the Navy and Army giving residents such different messages? And do you regret giving such an optimistic assessment that was ultimately unfulfilled? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, obviously, earlier on, um, 
you know, we we had we were we were very optimistic and we were looking at you know the potential of of trying to bring people into their homes much earlier. Um, you know, ultimately, it took much longer to get that to get the uh, filtration systems um, on island. Um, you know, it, it ended up being that they were not readily available. It took a long time to get them there, and then the sampling process just took a lot longer than than we had hoped. So, you know, I think. I don't know that we were out of step, you know, I guess, you know, we took, you know, personally me, I took a more optimistic approach. Others took probably a, a bit more of a pragmatic approach. Clearly in hindsight, I wish I would have probably taken a more pragmatic approach, but um, I also think that, you know, that reflected the fact that we did have a sense of urgency and recognized the impact that we were having to our families and, and really wanted to, to, you know, have a sense of urgency that we really wanted to address this as rapidly as possible. Ultimately, as you know, obviously, it took much longer than I would have hoped, uh, but we did it right, and and I am proud of that. And that even though you know my early assessments on how long it might take were wrong, the fact that we did it right, that we worked with our interagency's partners, that we had a very rigorous and you know plan to really give our people confidence that their water was safe, even though it took a long time to do that. Um, I think that was all the right thing to do, and so I am proud that that we ultimately I think we did the right thing, and and. You know, ultimately, hopefully what I'm trying to communicate here is we're, we're um, committed to continuing to do the right thing, uh, both for our people um, and our water distribution system, as well as the people of Hawaii in the protection of the environment and the protection of the, of the larger aquifer and the water system for the people of Hawaii. Uh, unfortunately, we are running out of time, but I just wanted to address that relationship that you have with the other stakeholders involved. You know, at times the military has been criticized by members of the Board of Water Supply, some public officials and elected officials about uh, just the relationship and overall communication and transparency that they've had. Uh, since then, we, you know, we've spoken to the governor. He said that he has seen a, a vast difference in the communication, uh, especially on this topic. But I'm wondering if you can speak to just the collaboration, the communication with these other stakeholders and how you build that trust back with the community. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. That's a fantastic question. So, and that that's really been a key to success. I think I mentioned, you know, at least once the interagency team that we put together in the uh, in the early days of this crisis to help us to put together a plan and then execute that plan. And so, you know, really, really value that interagency partnership. And I think, you know, I don't want to criticize, you know, whatever people have done in the past and the things that maybe weren't you know weren't done as well. But I will tell you now and going forward that. You know, I do think that we have a, a, an excellent partnership with the regulatory agencies. Uh, we're committed to continue. I'm not going to say it's perfect because it's not. I do think that we can continue to improve that. And we are committed to continuing to improve that um, with regulatory agencies and, and also to other stakeholders. As you mentioned, the Board of Water Supply, um, leveraging the University of Hawaii and their expertise to a larger extent than we have in the past. So very committed to continuing to do that. Um, in my world, which is really the technical world, um, I really value, you know, the way I look at it is I value um, the, I don't know if criticism is the right word, but definitely, you know, I've, I don't want people to just take what I say at face value because that's not really how good science is done. You know, the way good science is done is with a questioning attitude, with uh, with people looking at the results and, and, and uh you know, asking the tough questions to say, hey, is this really right? And, and are we doing the right thing? And is this the, and so that's, I think that's the relationship that we're building, you know, with, with the other stakeholders, with the regulatory um, agencies, that we can have that open dialogue 
to ensure ultimately that we're making the right decisions and, and working off the best possible information um, and the best possible analysis um, from a technical perspective. So again, I'm not saying that everything's perfect because I think we still continue to have a lot of work to do, but I do think that we're on the right path. And, I, and, and the entire Navy and Department of Defense is very committed to continuing on that path. And then you, know, you also mentioned that, and I'll, if I can take a couple minutes to talk about you, had mentioned you know the, the reestablishing of relationships because I think that that's critical. Um, you know, I've I've been you know in the Navy for thirty plus years. I've been stationed all over the world. Wherever I've been, that relationship with the community is absolutely critical. And it's more than just a relationship, right? Because you know I, I command a command of about five hundred people, ninety five percent of who are civilian. You know, most of whom grew up here, went to high school here, live here. So, so the military is really a, a part of that community. And so that relationship with the community is critical. And I call it a relationship because that's really what it is. It's not just something transactional. It's long-term. And, you know, like, like any relationship, trust is something that can be uh, lost very quickly and takes a long time to build. And so there's nothing that I can say that's going to rebuild trust. There's no magic bullet to do that. But the way to rebuild trust is by continuing to do the right thing over a period of month and, months and years. And so that's what, you know, the Navy and DOD is committed to is continuing to do the right thing, because this is a long term relationship between the military um, and the state of Hawaii and the community. And that trust is essential. And we're committed to rebuilding that, you know, by doing the right thing over a long period of time and, and proving ourselves to be, you know, trustworthy partners in this. Well, we're already seeing in the comments folks asking you to please come back again. I think part of rebuilding <laughs> trust is transparency. I would love to. So we appreciate having you on this morning. Our time is up, but uh, we do invite you to come back in the next few months and give us an update and see where we're at. Uh, obviously, this affects all of us who live here in Hawaii, and so we appreciate you being on this morning. Yeah, no, thank you very much for the opportunity. I sincerely mean that, and I would love to come on in the future. Thank okay, you. Great. Aloha. Thank you. Well, great to hear from Rear Admiral Dean Vanderlei about the latest on Red Hill and very interesting because his expertise is in engineering and all of that water safety testing that's going on. If you joined us late, he talked a lot at the top about the kind of monitoring they're doing, new wells that they're drilling and how they're sharing that information with stakeholders across the state. So Ryan, I thought that was very interesting to just get sort of a ground view of what's actually happening and then to hear about the concerns that he has uh, decommissioning. You know, you you see people out there uh, throughout the community saying, you know, drain the tanks, but it's not that simple because of this pipe infrastructure that, you know, he says the tanks themselves seem like they're fine, but it's that the, the surrounding infrastructure that could be problematic. Yeah, really noting that there is a process that they want to make sure that there is uh, a safe process to this and really recognizing the fact that, yes, uh, the water contamination is uh, a very important thing that they continue to focus on, but so is the environment saying that uh, making sure that anytime fuel or any of any sort of substance is leaked into the environment, that could also be harmful in other ways. So they are looking at this from a multiple uh, standpoints and also talking about the testing and how the testing capability continues to improve here on the island, uh, but that those tests and samplings continue to go to the mainland uh, through EPA certified testing regulations to really make sure and ensure that the water that uh, is currently flowing through uh, and, and sourcing those military homes is safe to drink. He said he is confident uh, in that the water that is now uh, being distributed to those homes and to those who have been affected by this uh, has been cleared and has been safe to drink. And then we also heard at the end there uh, about the relationship that they are trying to uh, not necessarily reestablish, but really trying to hone in as a, a key part of this part process of cleanup 
and making sure that they can help build that trust back with uh, stakeholders and with the community. Yeah, we appreciate him coming on and we will extend that invitation. We hope to have him back in the coming months to give us an update. On Monday, we're going to be focusing again on COVID-19. We're going to be talking with Dr. Tim Brown from the East West Center. He, as you know, if you watch this show regularly, comes on and gives us an update on what's happening globally and here in Hawaii, looking at the trends. If you look at the positivity rate, those numbers are pretty high. Uh, county by county, I believe Hawaii County this week uh, got bumped up again, pushing into high risk. So what do those numbers really mean? Because we tend not to pay as much attention to them as we had in the past. How can you operate safely right now? And of course, the CDC announcing that the vaccine for kids aged six months to five years old will be available in just a matter of days. So uh, we're going to talk to Dr. Brown about what that means as well. So join us right back here Monday at 1030 for another edition of Spotlight Hawaii. Have a great weekend. Aloha. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long's Drugs.